Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Your grace is sufficient for us, Lord. Whatever we're going through, whatever season we're in, your grace is sufficient, Lord. And not only, Lord, do we look to your grace, we look to your sufficiency, Lord, that you are our sufficiency, Lord, that you are everything, Lord, and that we can count on you, that you are faithful, Lord. And your word confirms that over and over. I pray tonight that you administer your word to our hearts, that you would write it on our hearts and our minds, that your word that is living and active would actually become a part of us, Lord. It would be like the bread that we eat for our soul. I pray, Lord, that as we get into your word, that there would be no walls up, um, to what you would have to say to us, that we would be fully open to receive what you have for us. And I pray that each individual, Lord, that you would speak to them specifically and individually, Lord, and they would know it's you. Because you say your sheep hear your voice, so they would know it's you. And they would answer the call. So for that, Lord, we need to look to you the author and finisher of our faith. And we do that now, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people before you sit down? Okay, everybody have a seat. All right, take out your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Starting a new book tonight, and I'm excited. There are so many, like, this is like a highlight book. It's like everything you're just highlighting through it. It's just like, wow, 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 wow. At least that's how I was. <laughs> so maybe that's just me. But as we begin the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a little introduction. We're getting to see how the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of First and Second Corinthians, we're getting to see how he took seriously the Great Commission. So the Great Commission, Jesus laid out for the church, found in Matthew 28. He said, go, so that's a big part of it, go, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in other words, take the message of the cross out to the world and testify to this message. And as you do, there will be those who receive it and become born again, whose sins will be forgiven, whose names will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who the Holy Spirit will come and indwell. But then a part of the Great Commission that's often missed is where it says, and teach them to obey the commandments. So really, that's just very simply what the church is. The church is a place where people meet together in the name of God to worship God and to take the word of God out in the form of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and proclaim it, thus growing the church through the salvation of those who believe in Christ, and then teaching them how to walk with God. And so 
In the book of 1 Corinthians, that's what we see. We see Paul actually went to Corinth, and um, we, we looked at this in detail in the book of Acts, and we saw how the church spread first from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was persecution, and so people had to flee. These new Christians, they left and they fled, and so these new believers would go into different areas, and they would form little assemblies or gatherings, and, and they would worship God there. And, and then we'd, we'd see uh, Paul sort of taking this evangelistic um, mantle and going from the church in what was uh, Antioch, which is in Syria. So the church started to spread, and if you kind of understand the geography there, it went from Jerusalem, and then the headquarters became, after Jerusalem, it became Antioch in Syria, in modern-day Syria. The Bible often refers to that area as Asia Minor. And then from there, the church started to grow, and then the church, uh, through Paul's missionary journeys, he went and God uh, used him to go and spread the message in and around Syria and then in the, uh, the islands out there, in the Grecian islands, and then um, eventually went from Turkey to uh, Europe, what we know as Europe. Especially God gave him a vision to go to this man of Macedonia. So that was the, the vision. That's in Europe. But in this area, he spent time in, in Greece, in this area. And um, in particular, he was in Athens and then in, in Corinth. So for homework, it would be really helpful to read Acts chapter 18. That really is, is the account of how he preached the gospel there in Corinth and how the, the gospel went from Corinth and then sort of started spreading around there. But so... As these new believers in Corinth, they had a fellowship. They formed a fellowship there. It's very interesting, as you read through Acts chapter 18, that uh, this, this area of, of Corinth, I've heard in, um, some, well, actually one pastor, he's, he calls this book First Californians <laughs> because Corinth might have some hints of California-esque type of qualities in that uh, a big part of Corinth was it was a center of sexual immorality. In fact, the sexual immorality was so strong that it was a religion. So they had uh, this uh, Acropolis, this huge rock, and on the um, top of this rock would be like a, a, really a mountain, but this huge rock, they'd have a temple to Aphrodite, which was the sex goddess. And, and you have to think about the Greek gods and the Grecian Empire and all that was going on during that time. So they are worshiping a, a pantheon of worldly gods. Um, they were uh, Zeus and all these, Diana and all these things. All This was the center of all of that. So they had all these pagan religions. Uh, sexual immorality uh, was very rampant. In, in the form of it was a religion. So I find it interesting because that's the way I see the movement of sexuality or sexual immorality, I should say. It's like a religion. It really is. Uh, the LGBTQ 
and all that, and the development and advancement of that. It's like a religion. People worship that. They have their their banners, they have their anthems, they have their slogans, and it's a it's a it's a religion. So it was like that in in Corinth and. In Corinth, they'd have temple prostitutes, and a lot of them were slaves. So a lot of slavery during that time, too. And a lot of these temple prostitutes at at night, they would come down from this Acropolis, this temple on the Acropolis, into the town, and they would uh, solicit uh, people to come and have sex with them. And the money that they would get for that would go to the temple. So it was called temple prostitution. So it became, or it was a religion. Uh, a part of this, why that was so popular there, is because Corinth was an economic center. They had two ports there, uh, or near there, and they're um, bringing in a lot of goods from all over the world in, in Corinth. And it's interesting because Corinth was is in the southern part of Greece, and it's it's almost an island, but it's more of a peninsula. And this peninsula would separate the uh, Adriatic Sea from the Aegean Sea. And this peninsula then would be a little bit of a problem for people traveling because if they could cut through that peninsula and go straight, it would save them about 200 miles of sailing, and the 200 miles, the area of sailing that they would have to sail to go around the peninsula of Corinth would be very dangerous waters. So a lot of shipwrecks, and a lot, so many sailors didn't even want to go there. So what they would do is they would, they would set sail and come to the area of Corinth, and if uh, depending on the ship size, if the ship was smaller-ish, they would put the ship on sort of rollers and just roll it across the three-mile peninsula to the other side and get to the other side. If it was a bigger ship, they would unload the ship and then take the goods to the other side of the peninsula and load another ship. Well, eventually, they actually made a canal through there. They cut a canal through there, and it's very interesting because you can go there and see this. It's called the Corinthian Canal. So that ships would be able to go right through there. Just And, and so that just made Corinth such a, a more popular and traveled area. And it was interesting that this is a place where Paul wanted to plant a church. He thought this was an important area. And, you know, kind of like today, a lot of people would not necessarily think about planning a church in an area like this but these are the areas we need to plant churches and that's what Paul did so what Paul would do is he would go to the synagogues the Jewish synagogues this was his technique and in those Jewish synagogues they'd have a time where they would allow allow a itinerant rabbi or itinerant traveling Jewish religious person to, to speak Uh, during their services. And so Paul was a former rabbi before he got saved. And so he'd go into these synagogues and begin to share and testify to Christ, about Christ, and in particular that he is the Messiah and about the resurrection. And as he would do that and he would go around and travel to these different areas 
Uh, Many people got saved, and those who didn't get saved wanted to kill him. So Paul always had uh, people chasing him. They were uh, particularly they were Jewish people who did not like the message that he was conveying and preaching and teaching. So in in Corinth, there the synagogue leader was Crispus, and he actually got saved. So he was the leader of the synagogue. And he got saved, and so another guy, Sosthenes, took over, and he was very upset and was trying to get Paul in trouble. And so he brings him to the magistrate, which would be kind of like the governor. And he said, hey, this guy's causing problems. Do something. And the the governor, Gaius, said, hey, look, that's not my deal. I'm a separation of uh, religion and and state and religion and all that stuff. So you guys deal with it. So Sosthenes actually uh, was beaten because of this, because of taking Paul to the magistrate. But Sosthenes actually, it seems like he got saved too. So two of the leaders of the Jewish synagogue that Paul preached got saved. Now, Paul wrote this letter. He was there for a year and a half, which is a pretty long time for him to be there. And he'd be teaching, discipling, helping them to grow. The church would be filled with people that, for the most part, would have had very hedonistic lifestyles. And they had come out of a debauched, hedonistic type of lifestyles. They were saved, transformed, and now they're forming a church. So what you find is, now this letter is very corrective. It's the second part of the Great Commission of teaching them to obey the commandments of the Lord. So this letter is a letter written to the Corinthians because they're having all sorts of problems in the church. And these uh, problems or things like um, divisions within the church, it was uh, sexual immorality, it was the misuse of the gifts, the spiritual gifts, it was uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage and all the things, and it's amazing because this, is, this letter was written to give to the Corinthian church in around 50 A.D. And almost 2,000 years later, it's the same exact stuff. It, it, you, we read this letter as if it is Paul's writing to our church or he's writing to us now. It's just completely relevant and contemporary. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, I've been getting into one, one of my favorite all-time books is Pilgrim's Progress. Have you guys heard of that or read that? Amazing. But there's a new uh, version out, um, cinematic version, and it's illustrated. It's kind of done uh, more recently. If you've, There's a lot of different versions. Even in the book, there's a lot of different um, reprints. It's never been out of print, by the way. And this, this book is a metaphor of the Christian life. And it's interesting because that is the, behind the Bible, it's the second most sold book ever in the history of mankind. And I find that so significant and important because when you watch it, and I've uh, watched this recent one in the past few weeks, two and a half times. I'm on my third time right now. And um, I'm like, I'm seeing this, and it's so popular because 
every single Christian has the same exact problems and deals with the same exact struggles and can find in this movie particular things that relate to the Christian life to everybody. And from all times, all generations, all different places. And it's good to know that the journey that we're on and the struggles that we have, they're common to every single Christian that has ever lived, that has ever uh, decided to follow Jesus and walk the walk and, and live for Jesus. And so we read the book of 1 Corinthians, it's like that's the th same things that we, we deal with now. And so let's get into it. We'll begin this journey through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. That's a good place to start, don't you think? So Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. So we're not 100% sure, but it's very likely that this is the same Sosthenes as Acts chapter 18, who was the synagogue ruler who took over for Crispus because Crispus got saved, and this guy now is saved, and Paul's calling him a brother. Now, isn't that interesting about the body of Christ, how it's formed? It could be formed of arch enemies. It could be formed as bloods and crypts or whatever because now there's something that changes and that's the unity that one has in Christ because no matter what a person's age or what a person's background or their upbringing or what have you, that when one comes to Christ, there becomes a oneness in Christ. And really, that's what this whole book is about. It's about unity. It's about the unity of the body of Christ. And it stresses the importance and how do we stay united because there is a great emphasis in the Word of God about the importance of unity and the fact that we stay united because united we stand. And Satan is always looking to divide and always looking, whether that's a family, whether that's a friendship, whether it's a body of Christ, that's his game plan, is to divide. And so Paul is writing this letter and he starts off saying, look, there was someone that should be an arch enemy of me, and now he's a fellow brother in Christ. And he's also setting out that he, he is an apostle. He's, he's showing his credentials and his authority that he has not from man but from God because he was getting pushback. His authority was sort of being pushed at. His um, position was being rebelled against. And so that's why he starts off like this because the, the Corinthians were pushing back and rebelling against him. And by the way, it, it seems like this is not the first letter. This is actually the second letter that was written to the Corinthians. The first letter we don't have, and we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, which you can look at that later, but he said he wrote a letter before. And then now he's writing this letter because there is a family of the house of Chloe. Chloe is probably someone who traveled back and forth from Corinth to Ephesus where Paul was when he was writing this letter, and brought news about this church. 
and this news was not good. And she brought this news, or it was either Chloe. And by the way, we don't know if Chloe was male or female because the, the Greek name could go could be a male or female, so we don't know. Um, also, we don't know if it's actually Chloe or one of their household because it says Chloe and their household. But that doesn't really matter. The point is, Paul got this message like the church is a mess. But you know, he he didn't freak out and panic. You know why? I think he expects it to be. Because when you have a bunch of forgiven sinners gathered together, it's going to be pretty messy. It's going to, there's going to be problems. But he tells us to deal with those and work through those more and most importantly for the glory of God, secondarily for the walk of the individual. So he addresses this letter and he says he's called, God called him, he has a calling to be an apostle of God. And notice in the first 10 verses the usage and, or reference to Jesus. It's 11 times in 10 verses. So his way of dealing with issues is to bring the focus back to Jesus. And I love that. In verse 2 he says he's writing this to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and those who are called to be saints. That word to be is probably italicized in your Bible, meaning it's not in the original. It literally says called saints. It says with all who in every place Call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. We could, we could camp this night and next week and probably two more weeks just on these two verses, but we're not going to do that. But clearly Paul is, is introducing himself to this church. They would have known him, of course, but he's establishing the importance of their relationship with God first and foremost. That's why he calls them the the saints. And many, um, well, not many, but Roman Catholicism, saints, people, after they die, if they've done and met certain criteria, biblically, every believer in Christ is a saint. We see that here very clear. So he calls us saints. He calls us sanctified. What does that mean? Sanctified is a term that we find originally used for the instruments that were used in the temple. They were, they were set apart to be used for God. So, you know, just think about, in another sense, think about your, um, say, your silverware at home or your dishes like you may have certain ones set apart for when special people come over so this is kind of like that he's saying that you now that you are believers you are saints God sees you and refers to you as a saint and your life in this world is completely different because your life is to be set apart for God's use 
Do you see how much is just woven and embedded in these statements? So the view that the Bible gives us of what a Christian is is often very different of what our culture tells us a Christian is. And so just to put it simply, a Christian is one who has been changed by God to the extent that their life in, the world, in this world is completely different, their role is completely different, and their life in this world is not about themselves, is not about what they get or what they gain. It's simply and solely about Christ and about being set apart for His use. So think about that. Is, is that how we see ourselves as believers in Christ? So he's telling the, the church at Corinth that's all messed up. He's saying, that's you guys. So he's trying to reestablish where they were when they got saved. So there's a, a big difference between getting saved and then the process of sanctification. So now he's working on that sanctification or working on that development of their life in Christ. And so in verse 3, he finishes and he says, So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. This is a way that Paul is acknowledging that it was solely the work of God in these people's lives. And, and remember, these would be a lot of times, was, these would be people that we would think, like people, they're so bad they can never get saved. These, that's what we would think. That's what is often portrayed. Their debauchery, their sin, they, these people can never know God or be godly or have a life in God. So that, that's the idea. And that's why he says, you are what you are because of the grace of God. So it's because of God's unmerited, unearned favor that he's given to you. He's lavished the gift of salvation to you solely from his goodness and his grace and his mercy. He says that in verse 5, that you were enriched. And that word enriched means super abundantly rich in everything. Notice he's using these words really carefully, by him. So he's saying God has lavished his love and his grace upon you to the extent where you become new creations in Christ. You're brand new people. You've been set apart. He said, now you are spiritually capable of growing in that relationship. He says how, look at how, in all utterance and all knowledge. So he's saying that's how you grow. It's the word of God. And it's the word of God that's being, being uttered and your knowledge of God that's growing in this is the privilege of a believer, I think, sometimes is overlooked so much that we have the opportunity as the veil has been torn in two and there's no restriction and no barrier that you and I 
can go as far as we want with God. And we can be enriched. He, he puts no limitations on it. It's completely now, as believers, up to us of how far we want to go. And he's saying it's through the knowledge of God. He's encouraging them to keep growing. And he's saying that because he's about to correct them. And that's often where many barriers and roadblocks are put up is because of the lack of desire to want to face the things that are keeping us from God, the things that God wants to remove in our life, the things that God wants to grow us in. And so he's laying this all out there. This is going to be a heavy letter for them. So he's telling them, look, you're different, and I have the authority to do this, and it's important that I do it. I don't want to do it, but I love you so much, and I want to see you grow. That's my whole thing. I want to see you grow, and I want to see you live in accordance to the salvation that God has given you. So he says in verse 6, are you guys counting the Jesus Christ? Are you circling that? How many are we up to now? Probably like six. He says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, you're true believers. He says, so that you come short in no gift That's his desire. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was commending them on these things. Well, he was commending them because they truly took seriously that Jesus could come back at any time. He's commending them that they were watching and waiting, that they heard and believed the teaching of the rapture of the church and they thought it could come any time and it says they were eagerly waiting for that in verse 8 it says who will confirm to you the end that you may be blameless in the day of our lord jesus christ and then he says god is faithful why does he say that it's because he's he is acknowledging and pointing out that god's going to do this work in you It's God who will work this out in you because He's faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is amazing because He's pointing out what happened when they got saved. And it was now this fellowship that they were able to have with God. So fellowship with God, that's what happens when we get saved is we're, we're able to commune with God. That's what was lost in the garden when sin entered. And now he restored that. This is the greatest thing that can happen to us, that we can have fellowship with God, that we can have communion with God, that we can walk with him, enjoy him, talk to him, have him talk to us. This is amazing. And he's telling them that, look, this, all, this is amazing, all these things that have happened to you. And I want you to experience the fullness of all that's available to you. That's what he's saying. I don't want you to come short of anything that's available to you. What, what he's saying is there's, when you get saved, when, when you, he's talking to the Corinthians, when you got saved, that just began this incredible journey with God. That just started it. So if we ever think that that ends it, when we get saved, it's done, and now we can go and not worry about God, That's wrong. 
Because when we get saved, it just starts. We start living for Him, enjoying Him. That's, that's the beginning, and that's what He's saying. He's saying, hey, I heard this news, and I don't, I don't want you guys to miss out on the fullness of all that God has for you. In order for that to happen, I have to tell you some things. I have to tell you some things that are wrong. So He starts telling them. In verse 10, He says, Now... I plead with you. So this is a pastor's heart. This is a minister's heart. This is someone who cares so much about him. He, he can't bypass this. He can't let this go because he, he, like, he, he would look at himself as the father of their faith. And the time that he spent, think about the time that he would spend there and, and sit with them and eat with them and talk with them and share with them and and he knew them like that. And he's saying, look, I'm, I'm hearing these things. It's messy. I get it. It's messy. But here, listen. Here's a couple things. Here's how to fix the mess. But notice he starts off. The first thing is you need to be fixated on Jesus. That's why 10 times or 11 times in the first 10 verses that he talks about Christ. You need to be fixated with Christ. That, that'll solve a whole bunch of your problems. So here's some particular things. As he's pleading with them. And notice he says, brethren, which means these, he's talking, this is a inner church communication. This is not people are saved talking to people who are not saved. This is like an in-house dialogue. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That word uh, division is interesting. It's where we get our English word schism, and the Greek word is schismata. And it's uh, the word that's used for tearing a garment. So you think about a tearing a garment. It's, It's not seamless it's not pretty it's not where someone can look at this division like if you tear a shirt you know something's wrong no matter how much you try to fix it up so what he's doing is painting this picture of how serious division is And he is urging them, he's begging them, he's doing it on the behalf of his own authority and Jesus Christ. But he's saying, look, if you don't take this seriously, there are huge repercussions that can happen because Satan could get a foothold. That's the thing, Satan could get a foothold. And when you tear something, there's violence there it's ugly it's not good and and so that's why he uses the word joined together that word's a medical term so that word joined together would be a medical term sort of like if you were to join two bones together again so they would fuse back together maybe you'd have to put screws in those bones or something like that so they would graft together again but what he's doing is saying Don't be okay if things are not okay. That's what he's saying. Don't be okay if things are not okay. He's saying, focus on Christ. 
If there's an issue, come back to Christ and see the importance and significance of being like-minded. So how can we be like-minded? All of us think differently, right? There's, there's no way we can think exactly the same because we're not all robots. And that's the good thing. There's diversity. But the one thing that we think the same of is we think the same of Christ. And that's what unites us. And when we think the same of Christ, then we think the most important thing is to glorify Christ. In order to that, do that, I have to set my own personal things to the side so that Christ can be glorified. If I push my personal things in the forefront, then I may get my way, but Christ won't be glorified and there will be continual divisions. He goes on to sort of describe these divisions in verse 11. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren. In other words, I heard from those of Chloe's household that there are contentions among you. So that word, contention, is what Paul heard about what was going on and would have arrested his attention to the extent where there would have been an alarm going off. So Paul went into full alarm mode and and when he says contention, it would be a a way to, uh, to think about Satan is getting after this fellowship and he's trying to take it down, trying to destroy it. So in verse 12 he says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas or Peter, or I am of Christ. So that was the issue. So in in the church, in this one church, it's interesting because it says this was the church of God that was in Corinth. In other words, there's, there's just one church of God. So if something was wrong, they couldn't go and say, I don't like you guys, I'm going to go down the street to that church, and that's going to be my new church. They didn't have that option. And he's specifying that there's just one church of God. So... The denominations that have happened, that's not a biblical thing. We don't see denominations in the Bible. When you and I get to heaven, do you think there's going to be different sections for different denominations? But see, we're not new to this. This was happening in the, in the very early church. And there are those in the church who are, are saying, well, you know, I'm more of a Paul follower. You know, he was, you know, he had this radical conversion story and and he really gets it. He spread the church around and that's who I'm all about. And they'd have some pride about that. And there'd be other people who are like, well, Paul's short, and I Apollos is the way he talks, Apollos, man, he's a silver tongue. When he talks, I just melt. He is so smooth in his approach, and he is such a wise astute man, that's who I follow. Paul's, forget, who are you? You guys are lower than I. And then there were the Pentecostal Peters. 
Hey, I follow the guy who preached to 3,000 people, uh, and, or 3,000 people got saved, and people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, we're Pentecostal. Hey, we're Pentecostal Peter. You guys don't know what you're talking about. And then there would be other people say, you guys are all following these different people. We don't follow anybody. We're just straight Christ people, just direct line to Christ. So we don't listen to anybody. We don't take any advice. That's why Paul is saying, hey, I'm an apostle called by God. So God has messengers. And so there's this all this pride, but we have that, of course, today. Even, you know, Calvary Chapel, we could be prideful that, you know, we don't dress up and we wear Hawaiian shirts where you guys are all stuffy or whatever. And those other people will say, you guys are just, you wear Hawaiian shirts. You don't even live in Hawaii. You live in Texas. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you guys are low you know, we're higher, high church people, and you're low church people. But basically what he's saying, it's, it's almost kind of back to Romans 13. Don't dispute over doubtful things. He said, forget all that stuff. Stop looking around. Stop pointing fingers. Start, stop attaching to a person. He said that it's called sectarianism. So where, it, you know, and there's been... People, uh, you probably meet people that they introduce themselves as um, Chris Calvinist. What do you mean Calvinist? Or I'm Richard Reformed. What do you mean? Are you a Christian or not? I'm a Calvinist. Or Aaron Arminianist. Whatever you, but there's all these things that have developed over the years and so, well, aren't we just all Christians? And maybe you have a little more Calvinistic bent, maybe somebody else more Reformed bent, maybe someone more Arminius bent. What, but is that that's your identity is, is in a man that developed a system and you're going to put your, the, your, your whole identity is wrapped in that? He's saying forget all that. So your identity is in Christ. You're a Christian. There might be little differences here and there in the approach, but at this, the same time, the approach may be different, and that's okay, but it's all the same thing. We're, we should be all Christians. So you, you ask yourself, like, when you, you maybe meet somebody or talk to somebody, like, well, shouldn't we just be the same? Like, if we all have the Holy Spirit, shouldn't we all be able to fellowship in the Lord? But things have gotten so fractioned and denominationalized that it's almost like, well, you're not like us. And there's an uncomfortable feeling if someone has a, a different method in which they worship. I'm not talking about unbiblical things. I'm just talking about stylistic things. So he, he's saying that, that that is just all so immature and so carnal and so selfish to be thinking about that. Because... All in all, it's, it's all about God. So as he develops this idea, he, he says in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And I just find that so fascinating to, in a time where people idolize and worship often pastors and I'm, I'm thinking about the 
Hillsong documentary I saw and how many people, the one in New York, many people went there. It seemed like because a lot of them had a crush on the pastor. And then they're all shocked when he fell. And there's no foundation. So I'll give, give you an example. So the pastor there was Carl Lentz, is, was his name. And he was famous. And people loved him because he knew Bieber. So he's got to be legit, right? So he would go on talk shows. He went on um, Oprah, and she, I think it was Oprah, or The View or something. I don't know. I get them all mixed up. But. And they, they asked him about homosexuality. He couldn't answer. Do you know why? He would lose his church because the church wasn't built on truth. It was built on cultural appeal and coolness. So if he were to say what they believed which, by the way, they did believe that it was wrong. They believed homosexuality was wrong. The church believed that. But they could never tell anybody because they would lose everybody. So nobody knew where they stand. But you can't build a house on that. And so what, what we see, we live in a culture where you talk to somebody and they'll talk about their pastor in a way where it's almost like a godlike way. And many of these pastors end up falling, and then these people are not walking with the Lord anymore because their whole faith is based on a, a, a worldly, charismatic pastor in many cases that uh, has not been rooted and grounded in the Word and not gone through a sanctification process where they grow in the Lord and they're humble but you see an entertaining, prideful show in most cases. But, you know, a lot of times we fault the church or the pastor. But in the book of Jeremiah, it says the people wanted it like that. So you have to fault the people. People want that. People love that. They want the God of this world, which is entertainment, one of the gods of this world, they want that in their church. So you hear things like, well, it didn't really feel like we're going to church. It was great. We went there and it was just, it, it didn't feel like church. It felt like a Taylor Swift concert. It was great. It was amazing. And that's not church. If the word of God is not front and center, that's not church. Because... When the Word of God is front and center, then God has the authority. Then God is the attraction. Then God is the center. And it's not man. And that's what we fight against. We fight against man being the center. And that's why I've said it before, but metaphorically, I always like to have this between me and you. Because it keeps the focus on the Word of God. And we never want to obscure the Word of God, especially with worldly things, especially with the mentality to where, like, well, if we do this, everyone will come. And somewhere down the road, we'll sneak the gospel in. And the Bible doesn't give us the license to justify the ends by the means. What I mean when I say that is the Bible tells us how to do it, too. The Bible doesn't say we can make up our own stuff and call it the Lord. And that's what we're seeing here. 
That's what he's saying. There are, there are people who are just fascinated with individuals. And there, that should be sort of a red flag. Not in every case. But there's, when, when people talk in ways that you, you would think should be reserved for the Lord about a person, especially a pastor or somebody in that place, that should be a red flag. And if the pastor is not teaching the word because they were drawing people with their personality, so much so where you can't even splinter off your church to start another church, but you have to have that same pastor on a screen somewhere else because it's the pastor's personality, not the word of God that's drawing everybody in. And that's, I, I personally, that I, I don't think that's good. You can leave that for debate, but I think a church, a local church needs its own pastor to be the one who's feeding the sheep and tending the sheep and not someone on a screen far away. And I know there's an argument. That's just my, what I feel about that because of what I'm saying. It just lends itself to pastor worship. And that's what they were doing. And it was causing divisions. Because they're saying, well, you're of this certain person and we're not. Instead of saying, are we all just of God? And maybe there are certain special people in our life that have ministered to us, and that's great. You know, I have special people that I think about that have ministered to me and been um, very important to my life. Some I've met, some I haven't, some are dead even. But they have a significant place in my heart and a big role in my growth and development as a believer. But they're just instruments of God. And I don't put any extra reverence or... Um, credibility upon them other than that was just really neat how God used them and God gets the glory so this is what this is for sure going to cause division in a church and it causes division in Christianity as a whole so he says Paul says in regards to this in verse 14 he says I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus, he was the leader of the synagogue that got saved, Acts chapter 18. And Gaius, in Romans 16, which we just looked at a couple weeks ago, he was sort of um, a host. And Paul says, well, I baptized these two, but what he's saying is that wasn't a big part of my ministry. You know how huge that is doctrinally? This right here is important. Why is this important? Because he's saying there's no such thing as baptismal regeneration. Paul's saying, I preach the word of God. In baptism, I baptized a couple of people, I said, but out of the thousands of people, maybe, he's saying that, that, wasn't my, that wasn't what the emphasis was. Why was he saying that? Because that didn't save people. Baptism is an act of obedience. And if you are a believer, you should be baptized. There's no reason you're not. And you're in disobedience if you're not. But it doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. And Paul was saying, look, I went and some of you people are glorifying me and elevating me and putting me on this pedestal. And he's saying, look, I, my, I was fulfilling my role, what God had called me to do to preach the gospel, and he empowered me to do that. And I didn't even baptize all of you except for a couple. And he says the reason why in verse 15, 
He says, lest anyone should say that I had been baptized in my own name. So he didn't want people to brag like, you know who baptized me, right? Yeah, you may be of that guy, but you know who baptized me, right? He didn't want that. So he purposely foresaw the possibility of that happening. And so he, he kind of bowed out a little bit. He kind of said, my role is to go and preach and spread the good news and plant churches. And then there's other people. Imagine all the people needed to baptize. So he's saying that there's other people needed. And, and he's stressing the fact that the church is made up of one body, but many members. The church is are, are those believers that are in, empowered by God with spiritual gifts and that spread across the whole body of Christ. So everyone participates in the work of God, but at the end of the day, he gets the glory. He said in verse 16, he says, uh, Yes, I baptized the house of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptize any other. And so he's starting to remember what Christmas and gifts, but I think Stephanus to their house. And I don't think, I think that's it. But the point is, he's, he's saying that that wasn't a big thing in what my calling was. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So what does that mean? That means there are other people to baptize because baptism was important to the church. Not essential for salvation, but it's important. So there, there must have been all kinds of unnamed people baptizing these people. But, but God had called Paul to preach the gospel, and the way he did it, I love this. It wasn't with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Man, you know what he's saying? Did you know Paul was very gifted, very trained, very smart? And he was in Greece. This is the home of philosophy. You know what the word philosophy means? Love of wisdom. This is all the, the birthplace of philosophy and all of this stuff. And he's there in, um, this, in the area of Mars Hill, in the area of uh, Athens. That's where they developed uh, public speaking and um, oratory skills and all of these things. And he's saying, when I came to you, I didn't do any of that stuff. And you know why he's saying that? He's saying, I didn't want to get credit or I didn't want you to look at me and say, boy, he was really skilled in convincing me. He sold me. He persuaded me. He didn't want any of that. And so he said, when I came, and when I preached the gospel, and he's talking to saved people that he preached the gospel to, he said, I didn't do it with the wisdom of words. That wasn't how I convinced you. And the reason why is because the cross of Christ would be of no effect. You know what he's saying? There's All the power is in the cross. If you never know what to say to somebody, or you're ever in, ever in a position where somebody asks you to tell them about Jesus, you don't know what to say, take, always take them to the cross. That's where all the power, the power is in the cross. He's saying that. The power is preaching Christ and Him crucified. That is the power of God to salvation to everyone 
who believes. Do you, so just for one second, one second, everybody, please listen to this. The cross is the power of God to salvation. So we have to come to a place where we, have we come to the place of the cross and received the work of Jesus on the cross to salvation? He was speaking in a place where people want to hear about all these other things. And he would say, I just came to preach Christ and him crucified. This is what, this is what changed the world. Do we get that? As Paul would go around, he didn't have slideshows. He didn't have smoke. He didn't have lasers. He probably didn't even have good music. He didn't, I don't think he had professional musicians, but he had the cross. And he had Jesus and him crucified. And all he would do, he saw himself not as a salesman, but an ambassador. What does an ambassador do? They just go around and tell people what Jesus did. Do we think that's not enough? Do we think that we got to do something to spice it up? We got to tell them Bieber's a Christian too, and so should you be. We got to do something. No. Anything we do to add to that is taking away from the power of the cross. That's what Paul's saying. I'm not trying to dress it up, spice it up. I'm not trying to do it, but I really had to think about this and ask myself, have I sort of gotten away or think I need to dress up and help the cross? And that's what we all got to think. But we also have to know the cross is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. That means... Your eternal destiny can change by your belief in the cross. He goes on in verse 18, and he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wow. So how can a person... Know if they're currently perishing. In other words, that's a, a way of saying you're on your way to hell. How do you know? Have you looked at Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and rejected it? Or discounted it? Or are trusting in that plus something else? Have you thought that you're a good person and that is good enough? You know what it means to say that you think you're going to go to heaven because you're a good person? That means you think Jesus is a fool for dying for you. Why in the world would God send his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins if we can do it ourselves? So a person that is on their way to hell is one who will not embrace the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and will not accept that. Someone who rejects it, pushes it back, or thinks, thinks it's dumb. Imagine in Greece and the intelligence and the academics and the philosophers and all the, imagine all these people just think that is so stupid. And Paul would say, you're proving that you're on your way to hell. Right now, you're perishing. 
But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So if you're, you're a believer, you know what that means. You know the power that's in Jesus. You know the power of receiving his death on the cross. You know how you've been changed and you live in that power every day. And he continues on. He says in verse 19, quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 29, 14, he, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? These are all people coming against Paul, coming against Christ, coming against the gospel. And he's saying, where are they? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who what? Save those who what? Believe. Save those who believe. Do you know that that's, that's very offensive to a lot of people? So you're saying you just believe in Jesus and you go to heaven? Yeah. You know that's offensive to people. You mean you just believe in Him and the cross and He does it all and, yep. And He's saying that in a time where the wisdom of men had not accomplished the things of God. People were unsettled. Morality was out the door. Societies were in chaos. The Greeks had been conquered by the Romans, and now the Romans were in charge. And, and, and he's saying, look, look at the world. And you're seeing the best that man can do. So if they would look at the world, they would, they would see immorality. They would see brokenness. They would see divisions. They would see wars. They would see violence. They would, all of these things, prostitution, slavery, all of these things. He's saying, look what you guys have accomplished. You're so smart. Look, look at the world. And that's what philosophy was, really, is trying to find truth and find wisdom and understanding. And if you've ever had a philosophy class, you end like the semester just saying, what was that? What happened right now? I'm worse off than I started. Wow. And Jesus is saying, but what I did, and think about it, he's in the process just 20 years after he died and raised again, He's affected the whole known world with the gospel. Think about that. It was just the gospel. It was the power of God working through these people that have gotten saved. Isn't that amazing? That's a pretty short time. And think about how people traveled and the communication back then. And, and you think about all that. And, and, and he's saying, look, look what you guys have created. And I think how appropriate 2,000 years about later and like, how progressive have we gotten? 
Is this progressivism? Have we advanced? Sure, there's some scientific discoveries and things like that, but the heart of man is still lost and desperately wicked. We still live in a time where there's wars, rumors of war, sex trafficking, drugs, sexual immorality. It's all the same thing. Because humanism, and that's really what it, what it was, humanism can't fix anything. Focus on man. Focus on ourselves. It can't fix anything. And so here Jesus comes and said, I can fix everything. And how? Believe on him. And you know what happens? Why things were being fixed is because lives were being fixed. People were changing in, from the inside out. And so he's telling these Corinthians, he's saying, look, you're sort of starting to get affected by some of these things in the world. So you need to know the power of God to sanctify and transform you. And I want to point out this thing so you can recognize it and not do it because you have the power of God to do that in your life now. So in verse 22, he says, the Jews, they request a sign. The Greeks, they sought after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, this was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, this was foolishness. But to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren... So he's putting the focus back on the Corinthians in the church. Don't forget your calling that there are not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put the shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So very interesting in God's economy that it is often those that are used by God, truly used by God, that are not the greatest stock in the world, so to speak. He calls them the foolish ones. And that's according to the worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom you would think if the church is going to do well in advance, boy, you better have these seminary graduates, top of their class, MDiv, Masters in Divinity, PhD. You better have them. If you don't have them, you can't do it. But when we say that, why are we saying that? It's because we're looking at advancing the things of God again in a material, physical way discounting the power of God. That doesn't mean those things are bad. It just means you don't count on those things to further the gospel. It, doesn't, it means that you have to count on the power of God to use you. And oftentimes, our abilities and talents will only get in the way of being used by God. So if you're extremely talented... If you're extremely smart, if you're extremely charismatic, extremely witty, praise God, but don't use that 
to further the gospel because they only get in the way of Christ. And that's why sometimes it's harder for people like that. It's harder for the extremely talented, powerful, skilled, gifted, smart. And he's saying that because of the pride involved. And because it just, in a worldly sense, when you use those things, it works in a lot of ways. And that's why God often has to strip us of those layers of self-dependence and self-sufficiency and self-reliance until we get to the place where we, we just depend on God. And that's where God begins to demonstrate His power in working through us. Verse 28, it says, The base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are that no flesh should glory in His presence. So that's the whole thing. So you look at the disciples who God chose. They were very average or below average people looked at in the society. In it, by every sort of marker that a person would use. And yet, these are the people that were used powerfully by God. And because of that, then what happens? God gets the glory. So that's why he does that. It's ironic that we're reading this, and Paul is saying that because Paul was highly accomplished, skilled, intelligent, trained, and from a worldly standpoint, the greatest of the stock of the Jews to further the Jewish religion and race. And God used him mightily, but you remember what he said? He said, everything that was a gain to me, I considered it a loss for Christ. He said, in Philippians, but for the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what he said is he didn't let any of that dictate and determine how he was used. He set all of that aside in a sense so that it would be fully God working in him and through him and nothing of him and everything of God. John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so, I hope that helps us understand that every single one of us who are Believers in Christ have a tremendous opportunity to be used by Christ in a radical way so He gets the glory. And the key is to be fully surrendered and open to whatever He wants to do and to present ourselves to God and say, Lord, have your way with me. And you and I stand on the shoulders of Many foolish people after this who have changed the world simply because they dedicated their life to glorifying God. And they kept their eyes on Christ 
and they live their life not expecting great or big things, but expecting God to be faithful to them. And I believe we are in a time where whatever the opposite word of revival is, what is that? What would be the opposite word of revival? What? Dying? There's got to be a better word. But anyway, we're in that. That's happening. But here we are in the midst of a dying generation and a time. God has called each and every one of us for such a time as this. And all we have to do is present ourselves to God and say, Lord, work in my life and be faithful so that my life will be exactly what you've called it to be. And that's it. And the power of God will start to work in your life. And he will blow you away. And if you're not blown away by what God is doing in your life, it may be because you're not letting him do anything in your life. Paul said that he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. So it may be that we have not allowed and opened our life and surrendered it to the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that power starts to work in our life, he will blow us away. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you made it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray a blessing on them, Lord. And I pray tonight that they would just be able to take a moment and just decide to place their full life in your hands and let you work out your plan fully and completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.